I made a lot of mistakes and I got cleaned by getting locked up. And my suggestion is go to the Betty Ford Center. You know, I could have and I didn't and I ended up having to get locked up. This week's guest is Steve Earle, one of the most acclaimed singer-songwriters of his generation. A protégé of legendary country songwriters Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark, Earle quickly became a master storyteller in his own right, and early on, at least, appeared determined to inhabit the lives of the outlaws and outcasts that populated his songs. Songs which have been recorded by, among others, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Emmylou Harris, Harris, Willie Nelson, Travis Tritt, and Percy Sledge. Earl has established himself as a genuine country legend, despite cheerfully professing a political outlook not calculated to endear him to country's more conservative fans. Earl recently returned to the European stage with his Alone Again solo and acoustic tour, during which he visited Midori House the afternoon of his show at London's Barbican. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Steve Earl for the big interview. I wanted to come in with the recent ennoblement of Copperhead Road by the, the Tennessee legislature. It's now an official state song. Yeah. Um, did you enjoy the irony of Tennessee embracing this tale of a, a moonshiner's sun-turned-marijuana planter? Well, I, I enjoyed the irony of it, but I also enjoyed the honor of it. Look, I'm 68 years old, so things sort of becoming, everything's becoming about legacy at this point, and, and I'm, I'm not... You know, a lot of people don't want to admit that, but I'm, I have no problem with it whatsoever. Somebody said this was immediately after the same body had expelled two members mm-hmm. because they it was it was a demonstration on the floor, which which was probably a breach of protocol. And it's happened. And normally you're censured for that. And they expelled the two people. And there were three people that they tried to expel and the two that were expelled were black the one that wasn't had tenure and was white. And it was, you know, it stunk. And, and it was one of those things. And I had friends that literally lefty friends that were like, they're wonder about me anyway, mainly because of the existence of my last record and a lot of other stuff, because I've said some stuff that freaks them out. But you're not going to accept that, are you? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to accept <laughs> it. Because number one, I mean, I, I, I fully think I, I looked on the website and they print the lyrics out on the website. I think once they get the lyrics in the website and see them in black and white, there's going to be another move and they're going to remove it. But we'll see what happens. But it was my sister was there. John Henry was there. I played the song on the floor. And the two guys that, that actually sponsored this have been fighting these gun laws in Tennessee for a long time. And they, they, they both of them have really spoken out after that horrible shooting. And was, all this was in the aftermath of that. And then I said, I thanked everyone in the room because there were only four dissenting votes in the House. And they were more votes against the sponsor than they were against me. And there were it was unanimous in the Senate. And I thanked everybody for the honor, everyone that supported it, and, and the people that didn't. I said, but I would like to remind you there's another song on the Copperhead Road album that you need to check out. It's called The Devil's Right Hand. (laughs) Well, I've seen the footage, which I think your sister shot, of you playing your Copperhead Road on the mandolin on the Capitol floor with a a chorus of awkwardly bopping lawmakers surrounding you. It was funny. What was really funny was the Speaker of the House that came down with to get our pictures taken afterwards. And I leaned over and I said, he's really, really right wing and probably really hates me. And I, I leaned over and I said... You're a brave man. And he just didn't say anything. I said, I witnessed, personally witnessed Al and Tipper Gore levitating, avoiding having their picture taken <laughs> with me. Every little while, I get on 
understand Mama says the pistol is the devil's right hand The devil's right hand The devil's right hand Mama says the pistol is the devil's right hand The devil's right hand The devil's right hand Mama says the pistol is the devil's right hand you mentioned The Devil's Right Hand, a song which I think I recall you playing the first time you ever came to Midori House. But the fact that you mentioned it in that context struck me as sort of a metaphor for your career as a whole. You're trying to smuggle fairly left-wing sentiments into not often left-wing audiences. If a single legislator went home and listened to The Devil's Right Hand, which is a great song, but what, what were you hoping they would take away from it? Well, I, one thing I hope they would take away from it is that it wasn't even an anti-gun song when I wrote it. It was just about guns. It was about things that I knew about guns and how destructive they could be. We, we should mention, yeah, it, it is not at all a preachy anti-gun song. It, it's quite fatalistic. I don't think that by the time I started writing things that people referred to, I still write more songs about girls than I do anything else. But by the time I started writing things people referred to as political songs, I'd learned a lesson from Bob Dylan that he learned himself was that finger pointing songs don't work. That's what Bob called them. And I've always tried to do that by assuming a character and trying to tell that character's story. And it's not always somebody I agree with. I had a whole trailer full of guns when I wrote The Devil's Right Hand. I I grew up in Texas hunting and fishing, and I didn't, and I had handguns, and I owned an assault rifle at one point. It was just one of those things. I just went out and shot at cans with it, you know. It was just fun because it would shoot fast, and you could get them, so I got one. There was nothing incongruous about being a peacenik with an arsenal in your house in the culture I grew up in. Then Justin, when he was 14 years old, found a loaded gun that I didn't, had thought well hidden. All the other guns in the house were unloaded, locked up, but I was taught you keep one loaded to protect your family. And the police came to my house. They were looking for me. They were not, weren't much help, so I didn't depend on them. Justin found it, and he hid it in his room. And I knew he had it, and I couldn't get him to admit that he had it. I finally took him out to a wilderness camp in Hickman County next door. I'm not proud of this. They were hiring these kids out for slave labor to the state. But I didn't know what else to do, and I just made sure he didn't have the gun, took him out there, wrote them a check, and dropped him off. Now, it's January, and they're sleeping in the tent, so 3.30 the next morning, he called me and told me where the gun was. But I haven't had a gun in my house since. So now I play it, and I, I tell that story sometimes, and I just say, now when I play it, it's a, it's a gun control song, <laughs> and that's all there is to it. The thing you said there about inhabiting characters, you do, of course, inhabit one in Copperhead Road, which is John Lee Pettimore III. Do you think he's a pretty representative subject for you by this point? Yeah, I, I, I think, look, Ghosts of West Virginia, the last record I'm, uh, of my songs that I made, I am writing songs. It's just everything's been going into a musical of Tender Mercies, if you remember <laughs> that movie. I'm doing that with Daisy Foote right now, so that takes forever. And But Ghosts of West Virginia was about an explosion in a coal mine not that long ago, 14 years ago. Killed 29 guys. Worst mining disaster in the state since the 70s. First non-union mine on that mountain, and that's not an accident. Mm. That's what unions do. They protect workers. So... Wanted to tell those guys stories, even though, you know, I think coal's bad for you. I think they need to stick coal out of the ground. The reason that 
Donald Trump carried West Virginia? Sure he did, because Hillary Clinton went to West Virginia. The first thing out of her mouth was, I'm going to close the coal mines. So Donald Trump went, oh, okay, well, I'll keep them open. And they were both lying. Neither one of them had the power to do that. Nothing opens or closes coal mines but the market. And that's, you know, people like me, that's the, the problem with capitalism we're always talking about. But the reality is now we use this stuff and somebody has to go around to get it and they deserve to be protected by safe labor practices. And I think I think you need a union in order to make that happen. So the point is you can't expect to have a democracy until you're ready to have a conversation with somebody that you know at the beginning of that conversation you're going to disagree with fundamentally. And my music's always been about that. Good old boy getting tough, that character is not me. That it's This is, uh, this is back first on the album. first album. Yeah, yeah. and Guitar Town's a pretty political record. Copperhead Road's a very political record. Well, side one is side two's all chick songs. <laughs> but it's like the side one's a kind of a political suite. There was one other question that the veneration of Copperhead Road did prompt, which is that I read through the resolution uh, right. that was put before the House, and it says, whereas, although Mr. Earl wrote the song while imprisoned in Dallas, Texas, dot, dot, dot. Um, Not true. <laughs> the, the, the legislature has issued something which wasn't true? Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's been none to happen. So. Uh, but but I, I, I did wonder how you feel now about, well, the more picturesque aspects of your biography. I I, the, I made a lot of mistakes, and I got cleaned by getting locked up. And my my suggestion is go to the Betty Ford Center. You know, I could have, and I didn't, and I ended up having to get locked up. I barely remember that time. I don't have any defense for my behavior. I know what it was. Even my the number of times I've been married, I, I don't know whether you noticed but I didn't get married for a long time after I got sober. I have one marriage since I got sober, <laughs> and it lasted as long as all of the others put together. And then it ended as well. So when you've been married as many times as I have, the problem is you. And now I realize that. And that's another thing that happened because I'm sober. It never occurred to me that it was me when it, before I got sober. So it was always everybody else. But I just don't know. I just think it's part of the story. If people want to talk about it, then they want to talk about it. I'm trying to finish a musical like keep a 13-year-old with autism and what he needs on a day-to-day -day basis and become a member of the Grand Ole Opry before I die. Those are the <laughs> things that I'm working on right now. But again, I know and I understand that all that was a long time ago, but when you think back to it, was there a part of you, do you think, that felt like this is something I have to do if I'm going to be a proper country singer no, like the country singers I, I look up to? I never bought that. I, I just grew up in the 60s and the 70s, and drugs were part of the culture I grew up in. But I was an addict from Jump Street. Mm. I was addicted to LSD. I took LSD like an addict. And, and I, I realized that years before I got clean. I just also, I did think there was a little cachet that went with it. I mean, I didn't, you know, I did use Keith Richards and William Burroughs and other people that uh, the fact that they were still around and had supposedly produced something or were produced, probably true in the case of Keith, not true of William Burroughs. But I justified my behavior with people like that. It's funny. I, I don't care about any of that anymore, and that's not an accident. But I never bought the idea that it enhanced creativity. I knew better than that. And I think that's part of what saved my life, is I wasn't telling myself that lie. I swear I see her in my dreams sometimes, held up in the middle of the night. Shaking like a pistol in a young man's hand there in the pale moonlight. Standing up atop of that lonely hill Spared by the company mine It's my blue-eyed baby with a best dress on In the shadow of a lonely pine 
There is, of course, another tribute album you've made in recent years, which I do want to ask about, and you are entirely within your rights, obviously, at any point to tell me and our listeners it's none of anybody's business. But this is the, the record you made of, of songs by Justin Townsall, who right. died in 2020. It's an amazing record. The songs, obviously, were fantastic, and I think it's extraordinary what was brought out of them. But is it possible now to remember what you were thinking while you were recording it? Because you recorded this very, very shortly after his death. I, just, I decided, I mean, I wrote, I wrote Last Words four days after Justin died. I made a recording of it when I wrote it, and I never played it again until I recorded it on the record, and then and I haven't, I've only played it once since, and that was at a tribute concert that we had on his, what would have been his 41st birthday. Now I probably won't ever play it again. But recording his songs, I'd done the other these records for these other songwriters, and my deal with making that record was when Justin was buried in Texas, I didn't go. His widow and his brother and some other folks went, and they took him down, and I, I couldn't do it. And and um, I don't know. My connection to death is a little different than some people's. I I do consider it part of life, but what happened to Justin kind of wasn't because it was. It was hard. There's plenty of survivor guilt involved in being a recovering addict anyway. And then when it's your mm. kid, it's, it's it becomes extremely intense. Why did I get it and why could he not? And he, he'd gotten clean once for three years and, and never could really do it after that. And I know why. He wouldn't do the things that I know you need to do. And I said, well, he just refused to do it. for And we were talking about it. It was not hopeless. He and I spoke the night he died. And he... I think if he had lived another few weeks, he'd have gone to treatment. But he happened to catch a, a bag of cocaine with a lot of fentanyl in it that night. He did not use opiates. Mm. It was a bag of fentanyl that he bought that night. I know what an eight ball of cocaine looks like. And there was a better part of the eight ball in his pocket, three lines still out on the table. He made about two steps towards the door and he fell on the floor. So he went down on the first bump. So all I can do to find any good in this, and I say it every night, every show that I do now, I play one of his songs and I just say that out loud, that it's out there, it is dangerous. So be careful. Is a period like that for you, and again, not wishing this to sound at all glib or disrespectful, but difficult in terms of maintaining your own recovery? I mean, it's it's literally unimaginable that a, a greater shock could befall somebody. Well, yeah, people will say that the one thing you're not supposed to do is bury a child, but that's bullshit. It's, it, somebody does it every day, and so I try not to go there. Look, the truth is the first 10 or 15 years I was clean, it was easy. Once I got clean, all I did was go to meetings, call my sponsor, I sponsored people, and it was never difficult. Then a lot of things happened. I had a child diagnosed with autism. His mother and I separated almost at the same time, mm. which resulted in a divorce and a custody battle. Then that all settled down, and then the pandemic happened, and then Justin died. So... You know, I've I needed the program more the last ten years, last fifteen years than I did the first ten. And and it was my it was funny. The the odd thing about it is this is I'll probably get in trouble with somebody about traditions and forget into too much detail about this, but I think it helps in the long run and it helps me. My sponsees are what saved my ass when the, the rubber hit the road. The people the, the I sponsor, not the people that sponsor me. The feeling like you're passing something along. Yeah, the feeling like I'm passing along and, and the worry that if I go back out, then somebody that's looking up to me will go, see, this doesn't work, and they'll go back out and they'll die. So that responsibility keeps you on the straight yeah. and narrow. Yeah, yeah. my sponsees absolutely saved my life the last 
especially since Justin died. Just when every ray of hope was gone, I should have known that you would come along. I can't believe I ever doubted you. My whole friend, the Going back to you as a songwriter now, and we, we started at the top of this show, you talking about your legacy and so on and how your thoughts turn to something like that at this point. Do you have a sense now when you write new material, though, that you're, you're kind of competing against yourself? Every time you pick up a guitar, do you feel like you're going up against, I'm just naming some personal favourites at this point, my old friend the Blues or Carrie Brown or Johnny Come Lately? Well, see, at least you covered a pretty big period of time. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't think it about that. I think it would. I think anybody that did that would probably end up giving up. I just feel fortunate. I've got more than one song that people consider to be indispensable. There's two that almost everybody that knows who I am considers to be indispensable. That's Copperhead Red and The Galway Girl. Mm. The Galway Girl is actually performed slightly more than Copperhead Red is. There's a lot of Irish in the world, and wherever it is, that <laughs> song is. So, and that song is the one thing I know that'll be remembered long, long after I'm gone, at least on that one island. Now they'll say some Irish guy wrote it because that's what they do. That's what they did with Danny Boy, English guy wrote that song. Oh, but, and uh, and as any Australian will tell you, an Australian wrote and the band played Waltzing Matilda. Yeah. But the Irish think they wrote that. Well, that's funny. He's actually Scottish. Well, Scottish Australian. Yeah, yeah. He, he was born in Scotland. I know it. So, so, so were ACDC, so, and, 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 we're, and we're having them. He's lived in Australia for a long time. I finally met him. I finally met Eric at, at a folk festival in Australia about 10 years ago, and, and I love that song, you know. So. But do you end up at this point having yourself a favorite Steve Earle song? I've got some I'm really proud of. The one I teach all the time, because I just impressed myself so much, because <laughs> it's just alliterated past the decimal point, and it was effortless doing it. That's one of the things I've realized that people that were born, to, not everybody was born to do this. And you can learn things about it. Mm. But people that were born to do it kind of come out of the box alliterating. And they come out of the box using the first verse anyway. There'll be internal rhymes and it'll just mm -hmm. be musical. And But then you got to write the second verse. And that's the part that's work. Because the difference between a great song and a good song sometimes is making the second verse as good as the first song. That's where the work part comes in. And I learned some of that from Guy Clark, just putting the work into it, laying it out and looking at it and using a little bit of math to sort of, I write on digitally almost exclusively. I write on my phone and on a computer, more on my phone than anything else, just because it's always in my pocket. And mm. so I don't miss things anymore. I don't lose things anymore because thanks to Steve Jobs got me from beyond the grave, man. I, I got all the stuff and I, was, I have to the newest, latest, fastest. <laughs> That's just I'm I'm obsessed with it because it works. It all talks to each other, and it's it's a it's great tools for creativity. But I don't know uh, the song called "Every Part of Me." It's just about being lonesome in East Anglia, but just something about it—the way it just sort of because it's it's saying something so mundane, which is you know I love you with all my heart. I love you. That's the way it starts out. That's the initial idea. That's been said a Brazilian times. That's that's, that that's my, up there with rhyming street and meat. Yeah, absolutely, or yeah, any of that stuff. But I, it turned out I, I 
time. I didn't spend a huge amount of time. I worked spent a couple of days on it, but I knew how good the first part of it was just as far as those things that make there's there's something that happens when you take the care to fine tune all those internal rhymes and the soft rhymes and the alliteration in a piece. And what it does is the difference between poetry and prose, and well, actually prose, good prose is poetry, but the difference between those things in journalism is in just information. Before you're through the first sentence, you need to get people to like turn the brain off a little bit and turn the heart on. Those things have to be working at the same time. And it's the Greek idea that the center of humanity is in the heart. Actually, all it does is move blood around your body. But we've come to accept that there's heart and there's head. And, and you know, you just have to get your heart into it immediately because people are more likely to be able to relate to how you feel than how you think. It's always more universal. In in country, though, in terms of writing country songs, is it all in the fine-tuning? Because it's the most infuriating, well, it's an infuriating thing about it. If you listen, for example, to those classic 1960s Merle Haggard records, almost every song on there is the same four chords. There's barely a word over two syllables. You can take them all apart and put them back together in no time at all. But if it's that easy... Why can't everybody write one of these? Because everybody wasn't. It's one of the things you're born to do. I, I don't. Merle Haggard. This is something. When Merle died, I texted Willie because I knew he'd be mm. bummed. And he said, yeah, we lost a good brother. And he said, I've been telling everybody this because I don't think people realize it. But as a writer, Merle had more number one records than me. This is Willie Nelson talking. Mm-hmm. Than me, Chris, and Harlan Howard put together which is mind-blowing when you think about it, It number one records as a songwriter. Mm. But at this point, does it often happen to you that you hear a new song by a new artist broadly within your genre and just think, wow, I wish I'd thought of that, or this is is really something? It happens, and it's one of those things. I mean, I'm hoping it's because I'm more out of touch. I live in a theater world more than I do the music business nowadays. And I have for several years because I had to commit to that if I wanted to make music for theater, which is what I moved to New York to do. But I wrote, you know, the last person, I ran into Joe Pug like 20 years ago when his first record came out and I brought him over here on the Towns tour. And he's still, he's still making records and he came to the Justin thing. Him and Justin got to be friends. That was a totally separate relationship from the re- relationship mm. with me. But I still run into people every once. I've been writing with some artists, with some writers in Nashville. And it's not all as formulaic as you'd think. There's a few guys there that can really write. They're just figured out how to make it work the way records are made now. And I'm not the guy that's going to say, oh, that's not country music. Because that was said about Guitar Town. I did so. I, I was like playing a show in Vegas, not a showroom, like a dance hall, like I used to. It didn't have chicken wire in front of the stage, but needed it. <laughs> and it was, you know, dance floor in front of the stage. You had to kind of get a show through if you were trying to play to people in the seats. And this guy, the album was out, and Guitar Town was in the charts. They knew that song. But this guy kept dancing by the stage during the set, and he knew how to twirl the girl just perfect. And he'd go, play something country. And he did it like three times. And I've never done this. I'd never done it before, never done it since. I'd stop the band I said, man, 
you know, that that afternoon, a guy that worked for MCA in Nashville that was a fan mm -hmm. carried one box of albums to Memphis to a distributor, and I beat Alabama by one box of records to the number one slot on the Billboard Country album charts. So I said, man, I just found out I got the number one album at the Billboard Country album charts next week. This week, I decide what's country. And <laughs> that's the thing with these kids. I said once, I very famously said that, from what I could tell, country music nowadays was essentially hip-hop for people that were afraid of black people. That was a comment <laughs> about racism, not a comment about music. I don't have any problems with arriving, with pushing those things together. I don't have any problem with arriving at a record that way. That wasn't what it was about. What it was about was what created the market in the first place and the fact that racism was becoming more pervasive, if anything, in my country rather than less. Which does prompt the question, as we head inexorably in towards another U.S. presidential election, how optimistic in general do you dare yourself to be about the United States these days? I mean, it's not about just the United States. It's about the world. True enough. Look, people in Europe's older and more evolved and more civilized, and that's just a fact, and, and it's, it's that's math. And so trying to convince people that... Um, you know, people look at the way governments work here in my country and they think it's, well, God, we can't have that. That's socialism. But And it is socialism. But people that, that live here have watched this this country and the countries in Europe slide further and further and further to the right and remove protections that people took for granted a little bit at a time. It has to be done a lot more subtly. So, And racism has not gone away here either. And that shocked me because I thought I was seeing a post-racist country when I first came to England. I had to get to know it a lot more intimately before I figured out where the racism was. But it's here. And and it allowed certain things to happen. Brexit's about racism. I really, truly believe that. That's all it's about. And if you want to convince me otherwise, then let's see some more officials of color in the Premier League. Then I'll start to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about the United States in particular, and, and this is me inserting a pet prejudice of mine by way of a question, is is it, and it goes back a bit to what you were saying about how Europe has had longer to organise itself, is American politics actually now, however crazy it looks, really only about as crazy as it's ever been? It's just that the rest of us now need to know about it. I don't know, man. I'm not sure that any two-party system makes sense. The model of a two-party system comes from here. It's more, there are other parties here, but there are only two that count. And we boiled it down further than that. And arbitrarily, we have these two parties that nobody in Europe can figure out what the difference between one and the other is. But, you know, what we did was, look, we suffer from a fatal flaw in our creation. And we were created by you. And that flaw is slavery. That's what happened. America was created as a place where the second and third sons of English and Dutch families could practice slavery mm. after it was outlawed in Europe. And that's literally who we are. And then we immediately, there were some people that were in among the founding fathers, Quakers and people like that, that were not okay with that. And so we started kind of cannibalizing ourselves. And it's been, it's still about race. There's so much of our, the way we govern it's about not admitting that, and it makes it fundamentally dishonest, and it makes it fundamentally flawed. I don't think it's hopeless because the Founding Fathers, they ended up with a spent too much time in the room and created a document that was way hipper than they intended it to be. <laughs> they were trying to make a Bill of Rights for rich landowners because that's what it was. It was about property rights, including the right to own people. 
but somehow it ended up being something that has over and over again protected individual rights, and they're trying to tear it apart right now. This abortion thing is not over. Women are more powerful in politics than they've ever been in my country, and sexism still alive and well, just like racism is, but it's not over, and that's going to be a big deal, and it may be where this rush towards the right finally I hate to be optimistic about that, but I think that's what's going to get them. Is that right there? Is it still important to you, though, to be able to both as an individual and as an artist to, if you will, talk across the aisle? You you mentioned Ghosts of West Virginia, which did involve spending a lot of time in West Virginia, not only a state that voted for Trump, but I think was in both elections his biggest state. I don't know whether that's true. It was totally totally about coal. That's all it was about. And here's the weird thing is in West Virginia... Not everybody has a job in coal. There aren't that many damn jobs in getting money out of getting coal out of a mine anymore. It's so automated. But the only people they know that have anything, that have a new car, that have any kind of future is kids get to go to college or people that are working in coal. So it's what they aspire to. Everybody else, it's dying they're dying of overdoses of fentanyl, just like everybody else is in every other depressed part of the country is. So it's about talking to those people and them realizing that they have more in common with me, even though my politics aren't the same as theirs, and, and vice versa. That's what Ghosts of West Virginia and that's what Coal Country, the play that we put up at the, at the public theater, was about. And just finally, what's next for you personally? Personally? Mm. Just, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to make sure that a 13-year-old that doesn't speak is going to be okay after I'm gone. And I've come a long way with that. I moved out of Greenwich Village downtown to Battery Park City and into an elevator building. And, you know, because I, I sold my IP, I did what Bob and Bruce and a bunch of people mm-hmm. did because it was just time to do that. I was gonna, not going to collect as much in royalties as I'm, I could get right now. So I sold everything, started over again. I'm writing a musical of Tender Mercies with Daisy Foote, whose father mm-hmm. Horton wrote the original screenplay. That's that was Robert Duvall's only best acting Oscar. It's a great story, and it's perfect for me. And I went to New York to do music for theater. I've done two off-Broadway shows, and this is something that's finally Broadway-tracked, and that's what I'll be doing for the next couple of years. And because I'm 68 years old, and theater takes four years, as far as I know. You know, that's two things I've learned. Marriage last three years. Theater <laughs> takes four. So that's, that's one of those deals. I'm, it's, it's about theater. I went and saw a great Guys and Dolls here last night at the Bridge in London. That's what I do on my days off. I go see theater. Theater, Major League Baseball, Premier League Football. Those are the things that are important to me at this point in my life as far as, you know, stuff I do when I'm not singing, playing the guitar. Steve Earle, thanks for joining us. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Tom Webb and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.